No, we had no idea where the record set. I knew he was probably over 400. You know, just by coincidence, you know, uh, we were up two scores late. And, uh, you know, he, he had a carry to the sideline. And I'm like, let's get him out of here. We don't want to get him hurt for next week. We just took him out after that 12-yard carry. I mean, we were away, so they we're not getting any information from the press box. No one's even announcing any of that stuff. So it was, you know, just by, we just took him out. Like I said, by coincidence after that carry. I'm going to hang with my old line tonight. That's what I had to do most of my hanging with after games, my old linemen. Couple of them, couple of them go home, but for the most part, I hang around with three of them now after the game. So we just kick it, eat, watch the game, talk smart, spend a lot of time together. Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast. For the week of Monday, October 28th, 2013, I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And the rest of college football learned who Octavius McCoy was, and we learned a little bit about uh, how some conferences are going to shake out here as uh, we get down the stretch here in the Division Three football season. But uh, the top story has to be the top story that was uh, on everybody's mind on Saturday night and uh, all over Twitter, and 455 yards for, for Octavius McCoy, the running back for Western Connecticut State, as his team defeated Worcester State. And, uh, you know, the, of, of all the things that you could have talked about, you know, Let's let's you know you heard uh, Joe Loth there before we started. He talked about the fact that they weren't going for the record. He didn't know what the record was, or he didn't know where they were uh, in relation to the record because they were on the road and they weren't uh, getting that kind of intel. Um, you know, you can talk about the fact that you know the 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 rush that he actually broke the record on was a touchdown to put them up two scores with five minutes to go. So you can't say, you know, why is this guy still in the game? Clearly needed him in the game. And, and, uh, you know, he got one run after that and put a little bit uh, of a cherry on top of that record, but 455 yards, that's just mind boggling. And, and in quote unquote, only 43 carries. I mean, that's over 10 yards of rush. Well, Pat, he's been a guy who's averaged eight yards a carry all season. He's been a big play guy. And if you're a frequent Listener to the podcast, you, you know, this is not the first time that we've had occasion to mention Western Connecticut, Connecticut State, Octavius McCoy. It's actually his third c- consecutive five touchdown game. But this this one was outstanding because they needed just about every one of those 455 yards. It was a it was a tie game going into the fourth quarter. It was a one touchdown game late in the fourth. And he broke off uh, a couple of big runs. He had a bunch of big runs on that day. But that, that key run you talked about was the, the 71-yard touchdown run with uh, with 5.49 left that uh, they gave Western Connecticut State the two-touchdown lead, 49-35 at that point in the game. And, Pat, he, he's someone, uh, a player that we're going to have to get to know a little better now as this week uh, progresses because uh, he's someone with an interesting backstory as far as how he ended up at Western Connecticut State and how he ended up in the spotlight in D3. And let's hear him talk just a little bit about that. It gave me a chance to mature as a young man. Um, I had I had to learn learn some hard life lessons, and I'm just grateful for where I'm at now. Um, I want to take it back. I appreciate everything that happened, and um, I'm just grateful. You know, and obviously that's just a, a thumbnail sketch, but this is a guy who's uh, who's 23 years old, who's had uh, some, you know, now has had some success in Division Three, and, and is at a place where, you know, he just gets back to college football, gets back to getting an education, and I know that there's, uh, you know, there are a lot of kids in, in Division Three and elsewhere outside of Division One who who, uh, who have those opportunities. Yeah, the, the, you know, the quintessential D3 story is one of two stories. It's either a guy who was too small or, or you know, just a little bit not 
physically sort of didn't have the right uh, makeup, I guess, to go play at a, at a larger school or earn a scholarship or uh, had some tough break in his senior season, injuries, didn't get along with the coach, position switch or something like that. And the other sort of quintessential, I guess, D3 story is, you know, a guy who, who goes off somewhere else, doesn't like it, ends up in D3 and finds it, rediscovers his love for football. And uh, it sounds like just from, from listening uh, to Octavius McCoy talk for just a couple of minutes today um, or on Saturday, you know, it sounds like someone who's rediscovered that love. And, and why wouldn't you love the game if you're scoring five touchdowns a week, if you're, you're you know, breaking off long runs almost every time you touch the ball? And, and I thought he hit on something really important there that he he's when, the, you know, when you read back the stats to him, he, he didn't get obsessed with the 455 yards. He said he's happy to be somewhere where they trust him enough to carry the ball 43 times in a game. And I think that's important. You know, sometimes just the experience of of being able to play and being able to uh, be an important part of a team and being in, in, in big games and, in you know, being a guy you, you go to in big moments uh, is really important thing for a player. And, and uh, I think that's one of the neat parts of, uh, of the story. So Western Connecticut State improves to 5-2. and two. Uh, As a reminder, uh, in their first year in the MASCAC and the MASCAC's first year as a Division Three football conference, this is a conference that does not have an automatic bid. So they are battling for one of those three Pool B bids. And yes, there are five, five Pool C bids, unlike what the NCAA tried to tell us last week. Um, you know, if you heard the first edition of the podcast, you might have heard that. And then I had to go record a drop-in in the middle of the uh uh, the middle of the afternoon on Monday when we finally figured out what exactly the NCA was thinking. Uh, not to take this too far off on a tangent, but it's just hard for me to, th- to think that there are people who are, you know, who are in charge of this football selection process who look at a list of automatic bids and have the NESCAC on it, and, and, and that doesn't raise a red flag. The, we've had so much turnover on the committee and at the NCAA level, that there are just people who don't have that kind of institutional knowledge of Division Three football, and that's a little bit frightening. It, it is, and it's nice that there's someone like you or some of the people who, who are kind enough to, to talk to us behind the scenes to point these things out. You know, you would think, in theory, the, the, the someone, the person in charge um, knows all this stuff, and I know sometimes these people are, are in charge of many, many things, not just one sport and one division. Um, but we, we maybe were a little spoiled for, for a lot of years, you know, working with Wayne Burroughs and his staff and some of the other people that we got to know at the NCAA who, who knew, um, you know, just about everything there was to know about D3. Uh, you know, we've had people suggest to us, Pat, that, uh, that, that you be the, the playoff selection committee. And sometimes I think that wouldn't be such an awful idea because you pick up on a lot of the things that are in the handbook and that should be uh, noticed. And, uh, you know, it's just it's a big asset, seriously. All jokes aside, to, to have um, you and, and to have the network of people that we deal with, you know, kind of looking over this stuff so that we don't make any mistakes and we get this stuff figured out. As you you, you know, you mentioned the, the the postseason, and the thing that stands out to me from that is that Western Connecticut, you know, we've talked about them several times on the podcast because they've been in several of these great games. Uh, they lost back in the end of September to Framingham State. Uh, 14-12, they won that. Uh, oh, they lost the the fifty three, the fifty four fifty three game at Mass Maritime, and they put up seventy points last week. You know, you put that all together, 
Pat, and you have a team that uh, with a two-point loss and a one-point loss could very easily be 7-0 and and be at the, the top of the Pool B picture, or you know at least tied at the top of that picture. There are a couple other undefeated Pool B teams that we may or may not mention uh, later in the podcast, but it is kind of, you know, they're probably headed for an ECAC Bowl, which would be a big accomplishment in the second season uh, under Joe Loft, but um, you know, it could be in the playoff picture if they've made one more play here or there. Yeah, and so you know, if you're Mass Maritime, be thankful that you held them to 370 rushing yards uh, and uh, and and kept them from uh, winning that game. Um, and you know, again, it's it's just a reminder of the distance between the MassCAC and the NJAC. Even though I think you and I both agree that Western Connecticut would not have the kind of uh, season that they've had the last couple of years, where they went uh, I think combined one and 18 over the past two seasons. Uh, they would not have that kind of season this year in the NJAC, but uh, nonetheless, it's definitely a bit of a drop down in, in competitiveness level in Division Three as well. Yeah, but but you do bring up the point, Pat. Um, you know that that with Joe Loff, he had Otterbein in the playoffs. He had that that program competitive, um, not necessarily with Mount Union, but with everybody else in the OAC. You know, one of the top conferences in, in Division Three. So, you know, regardless of where Western Connecticut State was, they, they probably were going to be back on the rise. And to be honest with you, you know, when you, when you set foot on that campus and you see what kind of, um, you know, anytime you're dealing with a state school, some of the advantages they would have in recruiting, usually much easier to get kids in and it's much more uh, affordable. Um, you would think they would be able to to be a, a competitive program, and like I said, you set foot on that campus. The field is impressive. The the the, the campus is a you know a big campus, and it's somewhere where um, you'd think teams would be able to win, and they have won before. It had just been a while, and uh, it's it's you know nice to see that program back up. And but I, but I also agree with you too that part of it is definitely uh, moving over from the NJAC and, and moving into the uh, the brand new mascot. That was a story that basically bumped the uh, the Whitewater Oshkosh game out of the uh, the number one spot out of the most uh, the spot where it might have been the most interesting story that took place on Saturday. Uh, kind of similar to last year's game between Whitewater and Oshkosh, too. Frankly, Keith, because you know you, you think of uh, the way that Whitewater in the game last year really kind of shut Oshkosh down and uh, and and uh, came back and won that game. You know, this is a game this year in which Whitewater actually, you know, had some offense and had some things going right for them offensively in the first half. So when they came back in the second half and shut out uh, the the Titans on the way to that 17-14 win, they were actually in position to win the game and not just in position to try to be competitive. So for uh, for Whitewater, again, another great performance defensively. Uh, they had a key, two interceptions and a key one at the end of the game to uh, really shut things down and a, a couple of fine running performances performances and uh you know whitewater looks like they are at the well i mean they are in the driver's seat at the moment they still have uh they have unbeaten platteville still ahead of them and they have a tough game against stevens point but surviving this first test and really the first test in the wyack gives us a little bit of uh some idea of what the picture in this conference actually looks like this year yeah and we we waited long enough to start to get that idea it just had been just with the way the schedule shook out you didn't see oshkosh and whitewater and Platteville, um, and really even Stevens Point, um, you know, play each other many crossover games, and now we're going to get all of them here at the end of the season. And this was the first really huge one. Uh, there were people tweeting today that this is the biggest game in Oshkosh football history, which may—I don't know if that's a stretch. They've, you know, they've they've had only really a couple of good seasons uh, over their, the history of their program, and then obviously last year 
you know, they went all the way uh, deep into the, you know, to the, the final four. So maybe the, some of those games were bigger, but this, this was maybe the biggest conference game for them in, in, um, in, in history, given what Whitewater has accomplished over the previous eight years. Now, yeah, I, I think you also hit on the, the real major point is that, um, the defense, another great defensive performance for Whitewater and having, you know, just enough offense to, uh, to get it done there and have that go ahead drive there in the fourth, well, not even a drive, two plays, but, um, you know, to go ahead in the fourth quarter and then, and then, uh, hang on, you know, defensively. Real back and forth battle. I think you still see these teams, um, are pretty you know, evenly matched. They may, if, if Oshkosh can, can, um, turn around and beat Platteville. You know, maybe they'll see each other again at some point in this season. Um, it, right now, you know, you have to, or maybe I should ask this as a question to you: Do 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 we assume that this this win is a statement that Whitewater's back? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. They're certainly, I mean they're certainly back enough that we uh, now, you know, un- unlike where we were 52 weeks ago, we're certainly talking about them for the playoffs. Um, um, you know, whereas last year we were talking about them being in a tailspin. They have to beat, uh, they have to beat Platteville, and they have to beat Stevens Point, and they have uh, one other uh, conference game left as well. But um, you know, one of the things that I think was big for them today, and I believe I heard Lance Leipold mention this in the uh, post game on the Whitewater Radio Station. But um, you know, one of the things that they've kind of lacked in uh, offensively over the last year and a half is uh, is a is the big play. And you mentioned that you know that it was a two play drive that got them that go ahead touchdown. The ended up being the game winner early in the fourth quarter, and that was because Jordan Ratliff reeled off a 56-yard run to start that drive, and Booker Ross ended it with an 18-yard run. And, you know, if they, have a, if they have the opportunity to get some of those guys to break free, which they've kind of struggled with over the course of the last year and a half since losing Lavelle Coppage, that's really a, uh, that, that's really a big feather in their cap as well. Sure, but, you know, it's just as impressive, I think, that, you know, you take that lead with 11 minutes left. Oshkosh is going to have another two, three chances with the ball, to, uh, to try to win that game, and, it, and they don't need a touchdown to win. It's the only field goal game, and, and the Whitewater defense is able to protect that lead and hold on. I think you know, offensively and defensively, this speaks uh, pretty well to, to Whitewater. And, and, you know, but in that trio, that Platteville, Oshkosh, Whitewater trio, the three teams uh, all get in, get in to play each other late in the season, it, it's good to be the one to strike the first blow because now you're, as you mentioned, Pat, in the driver's seat and um, – you know, it's 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 Whitewater has got to obviously turn around, play Platteville next week. Uh, Platteville is is uh, in a in a tough situation themselves. They got to go to Whitewater, and then they'll go uh, to Oshkosh at the end of the season. They play uh, at home against Lacrosse in between those two games. But you know, it's going to be a fun finish here. And and I, I'm wondering, you know, top twenty five wise, does does Oshkosh drop very far? You know, do we still have those three Wyack teams? Almost bunched up in the in the poll because uh, Oshkosh proved it was probably just as good as Whitewater today, and uh, you know it was just the Warhawks that came out with the victory. And if you were waiting for an indication to find out whether this was a uh, podcast we record on Saturday night or one we record on Sunday night, there's your answer right there. Um, I would say you know I'm I'm going to speak from. 
uh, at least from the perspective of my ballot and, and how I think the rest of the voters might go, is uh, I think that the the voters have done a good job of keeping these teams all bunched together. And generally in the past, you know, if someone loses a close game to somebody else who's, who's similarly ranked or ranked in the near vicinity, then generally the uh, the voters don't uh, you know don't take that opportunity to really drop a team down uh, the way the uh, you know the way the AFCA top 25 might I think that um, you know the the uh, philosophy that I've always espoused at this point is you know today we prove the poll right so you know if it's if it's not broke let's not fix it um, we had uh, we had numbers we had uh, Whitewater at seven Oshkosh at nine you know if Oshkosh is lower than eleven based on the results of what happened on Saturday, I'd be, uh, I'd be fairly disappointed. And I would think that uh, Whitewater should probably leapfrog Hobart to be number six, uh, but maybe not Bethel because, um, you know, the, uh, the strength of schedule for Bethel is really high. So for them to be unbeaten uh, with what they've accomplished so far this season and who they've played against, I think that they're, uh, I, I think that they're worthy of that five spot and worthy to stick in it. Yeah, and you could actually make a pretty good case for Bethel at number four based on who they've played and, and who North Central has yet to play. But then you, you turn around and you watch uh, North Central play even for a few minutes or if you're not watching them play and you just happen to have uh, Twitter up while you're you know, paying attention to some other game, it's like every other tweet is North Central scoring. And, and so, <laughs> so they're, I mean, they're, they're crushing right now too. And, and I think this is a good thing for D3 overall to have, especially when – We've seen you know Wesley and St. Thomas, two you know of our more prominent teams over the past, if not two or three years, maybe you know five, six, seven years. Uh, obviously, a little longer for Wesley than for St. Thomas. But to watch those two programs each pick up a second loss midway through the season, put themselves in playoff danger. Nice to have some other you know perennially pretty good teams rise up, but but to be on good years. And and I think you know Bethel. North Central right now, uh, you know, having Whitewater back, we have a, a handful of really good teams to go with that that real strong top three that we have. So I think uh, now that we're deep enough in the season where we can talk playoffs and not be stretching it too far, I think we're looking at maybe it's not just going to be three great teams in the playoffs this year, but it could be as many as six or seven really outstanding teams. And uh, obviously it'll be 32 pretty good teams and conference champions and, and runners-up. Uh, and There'll be a handful of, of, of good teams, teams that can win a week or two. But I love it when there's six or eight teams that, that are really, really good so that we get two or three weeks in. And uh, the third round is, is more exciting than the first and second. I just wanted to say one more thing about Bethel versus North Central. I think even if Bethel does hop North Central, um, North Central has an opportunity to go back and kind of win that spot back. They go to Illinois Wesleyan and to Wheaton here in the next couple of weeks. So that gives the opportunity for, for that to flop around a little bit. And actually, Keith, you know, back to poll watching for a second. It seems like this year the um, our voters have been more willing to flop teams in the in the middle of the season, even though... You know, there may not have been losses that, uh, you know, necessitated another team to move down. Yeah, and, and that's you maybe just speaks to the mix of folks we have on the, on the panel right now. It's always it's always been a mix of of uh, media, sports information directors and coaches. But in, in I think the more you do it, the more you can develop your own philosophy on on how to vote. And there's no necessarily right, right, right or wrong way. Uh, people have different opinions. And we talk about this. You know whether it's writing poll positions uh, in the ATN hole every week, or people tweeting back and forth, or talking about it. But you know, there's there's not necessarily a right or wrong way. 
And and I think for, for me personally, you know, when I see over the course of a couple of weeks, hey, what I thought of this team is is now proven to be not true anymore or these results early in the season that I thought were impressive results turn out to be not all that impressive because this other team has six games and, and they're not really as good as I thought they were or vice versa. You, a result you kind of ignored earlier in the year. Now that that team's five and one or six and one, you start paying more attention to it. Then yeah, you got it. You know, you move you move teams up and don't just keep them in the same order and bump up whoever wins and drop every, whoever loses. I've made big big moves this season. You're moving Whitewater and John Carroll up, yeah. and moving um, you know certain other teams down that I was really impressed with early in the season and less so in the month of October. We got a little bit of, uh, at least we got our first look at the way the CCIW might shake out. Uh, Wheaton hasn't won at Illinois Wesleyan since 2002, and that streak continued on Saturday as uh, they fell in uh, Bloomington 30-19. to uh, A game, Keith, in which, you know, uh, Illinois Wesleyan kind of just seemed to be able to hold Wheaton at arm's length. Uh, Wheaton battled back in a couple times. They uh, cut the lead to four early in the fourth quarter, and then Illinois Wesleyan held them out of the end zone and then finished uh, finished them off with a 95-yard drive that uh, covered uh, more than half of the fourth quarter and, and really uh, salted that one away. But, um, you know, from the looks of it, uh, at the very least, Illinois Wesleyan looks like they did maybe in the final two and a half or three quarters of the game. I saw them play at Carthage, and then for that matter, Carthage on Saturday looked pretty much the same as they did in the final two and a half to three quarters of the game. I saw them against Illinois Wesleyan. Yeah, well, uh, Pat, you talked about Illinois Wesleyan. I think this was their style of game, and um, you know, a couple of, of bruising runners, and they split 16 carries for Devontae Jones, uh, 16, uh, 14 carries for uh, for TJ Stin. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I, I got a chance to watch a bunch of that game uh, today, but they, it was there was audio, but there was no announcer, so uh, I didn't get the. I don't know if I'm if I'm pronouncing his name right, but. Um, the, the one-two punch was really nice. I watched it, uh, almost all that 95-yard drive, and uh, they really did. You know, when we needed to get the ball back, Illinois Wesleyan just leaned on him, and and it kind of seemed like they had a couple of bowling balls back there in the uh, in the in the backfield. The guys were, you know, maybe met three yards after the carry and turned it into an eight-yard run. Or, you know, that's that's a big determination, and you 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 want to see that when your team has the ball and, and nursing a lead. And, and you know, for those guys to go and put it away, uh, and, and they finished it off with uh, with a uh, a big touchdown run, sort of a statement, a twenty two yard run from uh, from Stind Stinde. I don't know how to. I, I gotta get that one straightened out. But yeah, you mentioned Pat, fifteen uh, played ninety five yard drive, killed eight minutes a clock, and it, and it sends a big statement. I think um, you know to North Central as well because that that's the next you know the other team that's that's really in the mix here in the CCIW. And they're going to have to grind, you know, to, to beat Illinois Wesleyan. I think I think you know the CCIW is a lot of fun uh, when they're there, and there almost always are uh, three teams in it, and uh, it's notoriously one of the conferences, or, or maybe notorious not the right word, but it's well known as one of the conferences that is able to put you know, two playoff quality teams into the postseason, and that may be the case again this year. That uh, when Keith mentioned that every other tweet seemed to be North Central scoring, that's because they beat Carthage seventy-two to twenty. 
Um, out west, we uh, at least find out that we will not have a, uh, a showdown of unbeaten teams next week, as uh, Will Lamet was uh, unable to make its uh, to to uh, fulfill its destiny against uh, Pacific Lutheran and go on to face Linfield in an unbeaten fashion. As a PLU defeated Will Lamet thirty-five to twenty-four. If you if I looked at when I looked at uh, the uh, Will Lamet PLU box score specifically. The line for Dalton Ritchie, the PLU quarterback, I thought that looks a little bit more like you know Fly Willamette rather than uh, Pacific Lutheran, uh, with Ritchie throwing for 196, running for 158, accounting for four touchdowns, and Willamette, which is not really that uh, is not at all that team anymore, uh, relying very heavily on the arm of Josh Dean, and Dean got picked off five times. Yeah, and and I thought that was the story of the game too. The, the difference between Dalton Ritchie and uh, and Josh Dean. You mentioned the the five interceptions. Dean threw forty seven passes, thirty one of forty seven for two seventy nine. You know that that's the new Willamette, as you mentioned, Pat. No longer a team that was that that's based on uh, running this unique, you know, sort of misdirection offense where um, it really. If a team hadn't seen it before, it could really catch them off guard. Uh, you know, they're they're basically drive you know drive back and wing it forty seven times a game team now. And uh, Pacific Lutheran was the one who mixed it up really well. You know, the real impressive stat for Dalton Ritchie not just the twenty two carries for a quarterback for the hundred fifty eight yards and three rushing touchdowns, but seven point two yards yards per carry, a fifty yard run in there for Ritchie, uh, and he was still able to have a decent game passing. And meanwhile, let's see, Linfield, oh yes, they beat Lewis and Clark 84-7. to uh, We talked not that long ago about what it takes for a team to score 42 points in a quarter, or somewhere along those lines. Um, and we talked about, you know, uh, defense and special teams usually being key to putting some of those scores on the board. And, uh, you know, those 42 points in that second quarter... They're just six straight-up touchdowns. Uh, Linfield never had the ball for more than a minute 41 on any of those scoring quote-unquote drives. It uh, seemed like uh, Lewis and Clark didn't have any uh, hope of bringing them down at any point in that quarter. No, it, it, you started the, the first score, came four seconds into the second quarter. It was a third play of a three-yard drive. Uh, then they had a two-play drive, five-play, two-play, two-play, three-play. So basically, every time they touched the ball, in the second quarter, they, uh, a touchdown was not far off. And to be honest, uh, it, that was the story of pretty much the entire game as uh, none of the Linfield scoring drives were more than six plays. They jumped on them um, pretty early in the game. They didn't score on the, the first possession, but they, they scored uh, halfway through the first quarter and, and pretty much didn't stop uh, until it was at 70-0 to zero at halftime. That's, that's hard to believe. Uh, Lewis and Clark got on the board with a 19-play drive in the second half, but that was uh, that was it, 84-7. And the real strange thing about that is um, this would have made a lot more sense if it was 2004 Linfield against 2004 Lewis and Clark, or was 2004 the year they didn't, they didn't play everybody. You know, but I mean, the, the old school where Lewis and Clark was basically on the verge of disbanding its program, and then... You know, they revived it, saved it. They recruited it up to a level where it, it's competitive now. Uh, most weeks in the uh, in the Northwest Conference, obviously this week was not one of those weeks. And, and the uh, Linfield probably got its best team maybe since that Stag Bowl team. Um, so it was no surprise that they won that game. 
Um, and no surprise that they won by a lot, but it's definitely a surprise that they put up 70 in the first half. Uh, you're fine. That was 2005. Uh, averaged 8.4 yards a carry. They averaged 9.9 yards a snap. Um, I would, I'm looking down for uh, third down conversions just so, I could, uh, just so I could laugh at how few opportunities they even had. They were 2 of 4 on third down um, because, you know, you don't need to convert a third down if you're converting on first down or second. And the only score in the fourth quarter for Linfield is uh, as Linfield ran had, had 13 different guys carry the ball. Um, I believe Josh Yoder did not come out to play in the second half. Or did not get on the field, I should say, in the second half. Uh, the only uh, score was a 99-yard interception return in the fourth quarter. And Linfield really could very well have named their score in this one. It was uh, it was as I mentioned 70 to nothing at the half. People were talking about the uh, 105 points that Rockford put on Trinity Bible some years ago. That's the Division Three scoring record. But, you know, you'd have to know that Linfield was going to do whatever they could do to prevent that from happening. Sure, because Linfield wants to be known for a, for winning a stag bowl. They don't want to be known as the program that scored 112 or 122 on, on Lewis and Clark. That doesn't do them any good. And it obviously doesn't, doesn't do Lewis and Clark any good. You know, it's hard to coach your guys to play to the whistle and play hard the whole season and then you get this into this point in this sort of anomaly of a game where you're like okay don't play hard you know i don't think that that's any anything that linfield says but there but you're it, it's an odd situation to be in at halftime to be up by 70 and and really think all right i'd love to get my starters a full you know three quarters you know, work work today but you gotta you gotta start pulling guys out before you even go out for the second half and then you know, in a sense, that, that kind of stinks for the for the 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 players who have to come out of that game because you know you 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 want to play four quarters, but um, you know you can't complain. I guess when you have that much success, when everything you do pretty much goes right in the first half, then you got to give way to the second, third, and fourth string. Wildcats uh, starters at the very least should be well rested heading into next week's game, uh, the short trip to Salem, Oregon, to play Willamette. Those were the the three big conferences, and that was where a lot of the uh, you know a lot of our focus up until the, uh, you know up until this week had been had been put waiting for these games, waiting for these games. Um, you know, one of the conferences obviously that has not had these games yet is the Ohio Athletic Conference, and uh, the uh, you know again Heidelberg rolls again, uh, John Carroll rolls in shutout fashion again. You know, Mount Union rolls, and we continue to kick the can down the road another week. Uh, at least uh, till next week in Tiffin, Ohio, where I'll be at the Mount Union Heidelberg game. Oh, good. I'm glad you found a way to get there. You know, Heidelberg is uh, in not central, central Ohio, but uh, in a part of Ohio that's not the easiest to get to. I'm glad you uh, found some flights from uh, from Minneapolis over there. I think that's going to be a great game. And, and the thing that's that I'm not certain of looking at, how Mount Union, Heidelberg, and John Carroll compare so far this season is you see these scores, you know, just Saturday scores, for example, Mount Union 48-0, uh, John Carroll was 47-0, and, and Heidelberg was 49-21, and, and Muskingum had that punt return highlight that made it on the dead spin. But, <laughs> yeah. but other than that, that game was all Heidelberg. So you see huge numbers pretty much the entire season for Heidelberg and for uh, for Mount Union offensively. You see great numbers defensively for Mount Union for John Carroll, which is I think now on its fourth fourth shutout, maybe fifth shutout. I should probably call the uh, That's four, yeah. 
Yeah, and and you know, so outstanding defense. They haven't given up even ten points to anybody they've played. What's going to happen when these great offenses get up against these great defenses? You know, who, there's there's no way really for us to know yet um, what's going to happen. I think you're going to be in for a great game. It's coming Saturday. Boy, and I just look at that John Carroll schedule. As you, as you mentioned, of course, nobody scored even in double digits on them. Uh, they go to Wilmington next week, and uh, you know Wilmington is uh, winless at zero and seven. They don't look a whole lot better than they've looked in previous years. So John Carroll, I'm just going to make an assumption. John Carroll goes into the last two weeks of the season eight and zero, and then bam, bam, Heidelberg and Mount Union to end the regular season. And you know that could end badly for them. They could be this this eight and zero team that hasn't given up even 10 points to anybody, and then they could be 8-2 and two and out of the playoffs. So, uh, you know, as quick as their rise has been under Tom Arth, and, and as, you know, nice as it is to have them back on the national scene, nationally prominent, they haven't done anything yet. They could be 8-2, and two, and they could be right. legitimately ranked, you know, 11th or 12th, you know, yeah. higher, higher than they even are right now, and be, as you said, yeah, out of the playoffs. We've seen that happen in... in in three-way, you know, splits in in really top-tier conferences, I think Platteville maybe last year was ranked 13th or 12th. Did make the playoffs. We've seen it happen uh, with Wheaton, where they're the third team, you know, the odd team out in the CCIW, and they don't get in. We, you know, we've seen them have two losses and get in as well. But that's neither uh, here nor there. I don't think two losses is going to do it this year with just the the, the five bids and with so many teams uh, looking like they're in position. You know, to to finish second to somebody, but still have a really good record. But at the same time, it's not even November yet, and we've had great-looking pictures turn into carnage over the past couple of you know the last few weeks of the season. It it, it has happened, so all hope is not lost for the two lost teams. But right now, they need some help, and they're going to need a lot of it. I wanted to talk about the Odakiness of the Odak, and maybe the Odakiness of the Mac a little bit as well. Um, you know, with with Kings beating Delaware Valley, that a bit of a surprise. The Kings winning its fourth game in a row. Uh, Shenandoah rallying from a, a 19 point deficit to uh, and to win on a two point conversion in the final minute against Hampton Sydney. Uh, but let's start on the Odak side because uh, for Shenandoah, you know, obviously first year head coach. Um, you know, coming from a coming from a, a, a strong program, a traditionally strong program, um, this is a uh, this is a this was a pretty stunning win on Saturday. Sure, and and some of it may be due to Hampton Sydney getting out to this 19-0 lead and thinking, man, psh, it's Shenandoah, we're gonna slap these guys around the, the rest of the day, and it turned out it wasn't the case. And by the time they got into a a, a back and forth brawl. You know, uh, to be honest with you, Hampton Sydney, even when they the, Shenandoah came back and tied the game, Hampton Sydney put its foot back on the gas, went right down the field in a, in, in a minute thirty and scored. And then Shenandoah comes down the field, scores in a minute forty. Uh, and they score with forty-seven seconds left. And, and this this is a call that you maybe can only make in your first season. And Matt Yoder comes from Hobart. He's got he's got winning tradition. All over him, but his team at that point in the day, there's just two and four of the season, and they need a reason to, to believe in him and buy buy into what he's selling. You know, they had a, some some nice games earlier in the season. It's not the first time we've talked about Shenandoah on the podcast, but at the same time, um, goes down. Shenandoah goes scores this, this touchdown. They decide to go for two. They're on the road at Hampton Sydney. They're not in the in the playoff chase at this point. They're 
they're one and two in the conference at that point. They win the game, uh, so they end up they're, they're two and two, three and four right now. The two point call is just um, you know you, you look at it two ways. One, the thing I believe about two point calls is, is if you, if you have a play you believe can get three yards, you know it's fine to call it because. Uh, you know, if you're if you're running the ball on a team all day, or if you have something that you, that's working, and one guy is, is not stopping you, you know you can get three yards. You do it, but at the at the same time, the, the implications for doing that are much different for a team that's not in a championship chase, that's in its first season under a new coach, and they're just trying to build and, and get something to believe in, rather than a team that if they blow that, you know, whether it's like if if that same call is in the in Oshkosh Whitewater game and, and you, you blow your season on, on going for two and you don't get it, that's a much, much different situation. So I thought it was a real, real gutsy call. Um, it may be something that you can get away with in your first season somewhere where you're not in the championship chase yet. But, uh, but Shenandoah did it, ran it in for, for the three. Uh, Hampton Sydney certainly stunned. And at that point in the game, they had announced the, uh, the Guilford Randolph-Macon score already over the Hampton Sydney broadcast. So, um, they already knew that that Randolph Macon wasn't in first place, and now at the end of the day, shuffling in the ODAC of all teams, Guilford is the one that's in first place. The one that we that that some of us thought would uh, would would be leading the ODAC at this point, I think, is in fifth place, maybe sixth. What? How how now. many teams are there? Well, there are eight teams. In they're in eighth. ODAC. They're in eighth place. Uh, Bridge, Bridgewater is the team we're referring to. They're in eighth place, yeah. My fault. I, I, I didn't even realize they were that far down the <laughs> it list. It is. It's I kind of kinda, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? it? It's definitely hard to believe. And, it, and I don't know if there's another conference in the country where a team that is the favorite can be at the bottom of the conference and still not be all that bad of a team. Um, in other words, most teams have a door. Most conferences have a doormat. Yeah. You know, a team that's just either for one reason or another, they're down on their luck or they've never been good. It's not. It's just not a place where they have success in football. There's not too many conferences where you can measure the, the top. You know, every coach likes to say this. Ah, oh, it's a tough game every week. But I think in the ODAC, it's certainly true. You know, Bridgewater, they're 0-4 in the conference and 3-4 and overall. Um, every team in the, in the conference has uh, either 3, 4, or 5 wins overall. Uh, Guilford's four and zero in the conference, five and two overall. They're in the driver's seat right now. It's just a an, an amazing phenomenon, I think, in D three to have a conference where your first place team and your eighth place team not really all that different. Guilford, as I mentioned, four and zero in the league. It's the first time that Guilford's ever been four and zero in the conference. And uh, yeah, everybody five and two, five and two, five and two, four and three, four and three, four and three, three and four, three and four. Those are the overall records for everybody in the old Dominion Athletic Conference. Uh, I, I wanted to try to draw the parallel at least a little bit for the MAC, uh, or at least, you know, obviously the MAC does not have the one of the qualities that uh, Keith was mentioning, that, you know, the, the bad teams in the MAC over the course of the last decade or so have been pretty bad. Um, but we did get a little bit of a, a little bit of a shakeup today as uh, on Saturday as Kings defeated Delaware Valley in overtime. You know, one of the things that I don't even know if we mentioned it last week on the podcast, Keith or not, uh, Aaron Wilmer, the starting quarterback for Delaware Valley has been out for the past two weeks. Um, yep. 
Yeah, clearly they uh, probably could have used him on Saturday. Uh, his uh, replacement was 8 of 21 with three interceptions, threw for only 88 yards. Uh, the fact that Kyle Schubert was uh, able to run for 188 yards and a touchdown really kept them in this game. But, you know, I don't want to take too much away from what Kings has accomplished because you remember it was not all that long ago that uh, in triple take I was pointing out Kings as a game that Misericordia, who has you know, never won a football game in its short football history, uh, uh, a, a game that they could win. Uh, and, you know, uh, Misery took them to double overtime before losing, and Kings hasn't lost a game since, and they've beaten uh, they beat Florham, but then they beat Stevenson, and Stevenson's a, at least a middle-of-the-pack team in the conference this year, and they beat Delaware Valley, who is one of the contenders. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was a, um, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that was a playoff caliber team or playoff caliber program at Kings. It was brief. And uh, it's kind of nice to have them back in, in, the, in the sense that we're talking about them, you know, now we're not talking about them this week for, uh, for Ron Garrett. He didn't score on, uh, on Saturday. All the, all the plays, all the, the scoring plays for Kings came on offense, although they did set up their first score, uh, I believe, with a, uh, with a turnover. Um, you know, they were scoreless at the half in this game. Um, you know, I mean, Kings was. Delaware Valley led 7-0. And uh, they had to, you know, kind of dig deep and grind this one out, uh, hang hang tough when uh, when Delaware Valley, uh, you know, was leading but, but not putting up a lot of points. I mean, these are kind of wins that aren't – are impressive in the sense that we we're not sitting here talking about it for the for the amazing stats that somebody put up. We're just talking about it for the significance of Kings beating Delaware Valley. And I think you know you did hit on the, the big thing, Pat, that uh, you know Delval seems to not be the same uh, without Wilmer. But at the same time, um, you know the the MAC is kind of that kind of conference right now where nobody ha- has taken control of it, and every week. Every time we've brought it up on the podcast, it looks like, okay, maybe, maybe Lycom is going to be the team. Maybe Widener is going to be the team. Maybe DelVal is going to be the team. You know, there, Lebanon Valley, there was a time when we didn't know if, if Stevenson or Albright were going to challenge for, for the top of the conference. And I think it is pretty deep uh, conference wise. And, uh, right, you know, right now you got three, five and one teams at the, at the top of the conference. And, you know, for the MAC and the ODAC for conferences like this, it can be a lot of fun during the season to have this uh, this interplay between teams where um, every week, every game is in doubt, and uh, you have no idea who's, who's going to come out on top at the end of 11 weeks. But it also means the winner probably gets a uh, tough draw in the playoffs, maybe a road playoff game against a top team in the East or the South. Lebanon Valley at, at six and one overall, five and one in the league. is one of those three teams tied with a five and one mark at the top of the conference, and uh, they are the only team that could conceivably finish out the season with a uh, with a, a nine and one record, and potentially have a home playoff game at the very least. Uh, I wanted to talk about a conference that we don't really talk about in you know in the sense of their conference race necessarily uh, a whole whole uh, you know a whole lot of the time but I wanted to talk about the MIAA because I thought that got pretty interesting on Saturday uh, especially with uh, Olivet scoring with uh, 12 seconds or so left in the game to beat Adrian uh, that's a big conference win for 
for Olivet, and it's the first conference loss for Adrian. Uh, Albion stays uh, unbeaten in the league on top at 5-2, and 3-0. and oh. We had a game on uh, Saturday between Hope and Kalamazoo, which was a lot more interesting than games between Hope and Kalamazoo have been over the last 18 years or so, and Hope won that one with uh, 10 fourth quarter points to win 27-17. Uh, after the get that game was tied in the uh, in the fourth quarter, but uh, you know we talked about Olivet and what they did in the first four games of the season, their non-conference schedule against you know three teams who were you know were were pretty beatable, uh, and um, you know and and one team that might have been a little bit of a challenge, and then you know oh by the way, uh, you know they obviously they lost the the uh, the one conference game a couple weeks ago against Hope, but then uh, they come back and beat Adrian, and that's a that's clearly a surprise. Yeah, it's a heck of a way to bounce back from that hope loss. That was a 47-14 loss on their home field after they were feeling great about themselves winning the first five games of the season. And I know that, you know, I thought, okay, this this run has to be up at some point. We're talking about uh, Olivet, who, you know, I guess every time we, we bring them up, we have to bring up the fact that they, um, you know, in the past five seasons had gone 0-10 three times, 1-9 twice, so they were, uh, two and forty-eight, the previous five seasons, and and they they're six and one now at this point. But this was really the first win um, over a, a a really strong program, a perennially strong program. Uh, that you know they went and and they went to Adrian and won there. And this is the game where you say, okay, you know they're, they're not just back as a, a, a middle of the pack team. They're going to be a, a contender. Uh, in in this conference, and you're right, Pat. Conference, it's another one now that, uh, even though it has a leader right now in in Albion, it, it's just not sure from week to week. I mean, uh, you know, Kalamazoo uh, threatening Hope, and Hope looked like uh, they were as good as any team um, in the conference at one point. Uh, surprising to see trying at zero and three at the bottom of that conference. Uh, you know, not not quite as as low down there as Alma, but um, but yeah, but it's just one of those ones where uh, you put it in the group. I think with the Odak and the Mac at this point, it's fun. You know, you you there's going to be three games going on each week, and one team on by for the rest of the season, and, and each of those three games is, is potentially a, a really um, close game, and, and it'll be fun from here till November 16th. But then uh, when those uh, when those Selection Sunday rankings come out November 17th, you're going to probably find your conference champion on the road with a real tough draw. In the New Jersey Athletic Conference on Saturday, uh, Cortland State restored at least a little bit of order at the top of the conference. They handed TCNJ the first conference loss of the season and defeated them 20-7. to Cortland's at the top of the conference right now, but only by half a game. There are four teams tied in the loss column with one loss apiece. Cortland, Rowan, uh, the teams who have yet to play each other, uh, Brockport, and TCNJ. And that's a, another conference in which, um, you know, at the very least... I think we we would suspect that they would be below the MAC champ. Uh, if a, if there's a MAC champ that emerges with one loss, there's not going to be an NJAC champ that does that because there's nobody in the conference that has fewer than two losses. And in fact, there's only one team that has two losses. And Rowan, Brockport, and TCNJ each are at four and three overall. Yeah, uh, you pretty much hit all the the major salient points from from talking about the NJAC. It's it's just not their best year. 
as far as uh, having a really elite team at the top of the conference, and there's been plenty of years where they've been like that. There's been plenty of years where there's been two or three really good teams or occasionally four good teams at, at the top of that conference. And uh, right now they don't have anybody that's top 25 worthy, but somebody's going to win this thing and make the playoffs. And uh, you know, I, I can't say uh, Cortland beating TCNJ at home 20-7 uh, to 7 was the final. I don't think that was a, a huge surprise. Uh, the you know the big surprise in, in that conference on on uh, Saturday was it's from a team that um, you know we we just begun to talk about Morrisville State as a, a pretty you know legitimate team in this conference and they um, Montclair State goes up to uh, to Morrisville wins that game thirty four twenty one and so that, you know just further throws the, uh, the 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 whole conference race. Into, I, I guess actually, I probably didn't throw it into whack. That actually kind of helped it because now, you know, if Morrisville had won that game, we'd be staring at five teams with one conference loss at this point. And right now, we're only looking at the four: the, Cor- the Cortland State, Rowan, Brockport, TCNJ. A uh, lot, lot of big games uh, left in the, in the for the final uh, three weeks in, in the NJAC, and uh, they're gonna have to sort out uh, a pretty big mess. But I, I think that's a lot of fun for for those fans at that time. You know, and, and again, I, I know I keep going back to the same point, but then when you get to the postseason, you're going to have a real, real tough draw. Montclair State scored more points on Saturday than they had in any two games combined the rest of the season. So just to chew on uh, on that thought for a couple moments. Um, this is a, a conference that obviously, as we mentioned uh, just earlier in this podcast, if you missed it, does not uh, accept playoff bids. We're talking about the NESCAC, but, uh, um, you know, Trinity, Connecticut uh, loses their 14-game winning streak is snapped. Uh, Middlebury beats them 27-24, and Wesleyan remains undefeated, so now they're in first place in the conference unencumbered. And that's a that that's a shock from um, a program, I guess, name recognition standpoint. As Trinity has been the class of, of the NESCAC for a while now, but it, but it's not that big of a shock if if you know the firepower that uh, that Middlebury has had really the past three seasons now. Uh, this is their third season with McCallum Foot as as the quarterback up there, and that's a guy who would probably get a lot more uh, you know coast to coast recognition if uh, if the NESCAC played outside of its own circle and uh, and you know went to send their champion into the playoffs that'd be a guy that we'd get to know and and you know not saying that we don't know Middlebury players uh, or NESCAC players at all because there's certainly a handful of of them on the uh, all-American team and the all-region teams last season uh, and there will be probably again this season but um but but it, that's a guy who, who um, and a team, I guess, in Middlebury that maybe flies a little bit uh, under the radar nationally, and, and we know why they do. But at the same time, uh, the, you know, that put it this way, that had been a, a game that we maybe have, would have talked about uh, in advance, and, and wouldn't have been so far down the chain. But it just it doesn't have any playoff implications, and and um, at this point, because the uh, the NESCAC is so jumbled, uh, may not have any any top twenty five implications. So. Although you know you have to give Wesleyan uh, some consideration, um, they ha- they haven't been winning games by blowout. This is Wesleyan I'm talking about now, um, but they are undefeated, and that program has been on the rise for the past year and a half. So uh, you know, nice to see someone uh, different at the top of that conference, at least for the week. 
Keith, I know that uh, you don't deal with college uh, uh, content or college football content when you're uh, at your day job at the Washington Post. But did you see the Gallaudet piece before it got uh, before it got published? You know, I was I was asked to read it, and uh, I was on my way out. I didn't have anything to do with planning it in that in that sense. Uh, as you mentioned, I do NFL and uh, don't do colleges, but um, got mentioned to me, and, and and Mike Wise talked to me. Uh, before he went out there, and then I was asked to read it before I left. Like, hey, you know, just as a curiosity, like check it out. It's D three. You know, if anything um, looks out of whack, you'd be the guy who would catch it. And uh, and I didn't get a chance to do it before I left uh, for the weekend uh, on Thursday, uh, Friday, Saturday weekend, because I do NFL on Sunday. So, uh, it, it, what did you think of how it turned out? I thought it was a great piece. Actually, I thought it was. One of the best pieces that a um, that a large market newspaper has has written on a Division three football team. Uh, you know, we've seen some good stuff out of the New York Times. Uh, the guy Bill Pennington there, in, in the past five or six years, has done two or three really good probing looks at Division three football. But I thought this was a great um, you know profile of a, a Division three football program. So if you're uh, sitting there at home and you haven't read it. Uh, I would certainly encourage you to do so. Um, you could probably Google it and find it that way. You can find it in the What We're Reading box, which is listed under columns on the uh, d3football.com homepage. But I thought that was just a uh, a great look at uh, what Gallaudet has accomplished this season and, and you know, also kind of what they go through. Um, and I'm not just talking about... Um, you know, being the the four year university for the deaf, I'm talking about the fact that they get on a bus nearly every other week and go 400, 500 miles somewhere. This week they were at home. They beat Husson 16 uh, 13, but last week they were in New Hampshire. Next week they are in, uh, you know, the suburbs of Worcester, Mass., uh, and they have to go up to, uh, um, I think, SUNY Maritime. Is SUNY Maritime on Long Island or no? They're in. They're on the other side of the of the river, uh, yeah, right? Thro- but uh, Throg's Neck, which is, yeah, on the on the Bronx side of, uh, of it. But they still have to go, you know, that's a five-hour bus ride, depending on traffic, and uh, Becker would be, depending on the time of day, it could be anywhere from nine hours to 17. Um, Castleton State is way up there in the middle of nowhere. You know, for as much... And this is the um, this is the comparison that Mike Wise made in the piece. But for as much uh, consternation as there was over uh, Grambling State's bus ride uh, a few weeks ago, uh, this is something that Gallaudet's pretty used to. Yeah, and, and you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast because it's familiar to us that every D three school has some sort of challenge that that it goes through. Um, it, it's just a you know part of life. In Division Three, whether it's you know uh, at the big schools that seem to have all the advantages, well then they deal with hundred man roster limits, or you're dealing with you know military schools or or really elite academic schools that can't get you know but a certain number of football players in, um, and and Gallaudet has Gallaudet has its own uh, set of, set of challenges, some you know obviously out of their control but some self-imposed by you know by choosing to be in this conference and, and i think it's a good idea for them to be in the ecfc because you have a a, a slate of games you know you look at, at, at wesley trying to schedule as independent and they're they're playing teams from california and alabama just to fill out the schedule you know that that's worse than than what uh Gallaudet has to go through to, you know to get up get up to new england a few times a year um in new york Going into the lightning, 
round portion. I cut you off. Was that in, was that appropriate? Are we good to move on? <laughs> well, we can. I, I was just going to say that that um, you know that that they they deal with maybe more challenges than the average uh, D three school because they they obviously have their own you know set of challenges to deal with. But then yeah, uh, traveling and and you know right now I think one of their their big challenges is is. Uh, trying to get a little bit of, of national recognition and it's just tough with the with the schedule that they that they play. It's gonna have to come, you know, they're gonna have to finish uh ten and zero and, and maybe make a little noise in the playoffs. Moving over to the Iowa conference where, you know, last week Dubuque goes to Coe and pretty much handles Coe, beats him by twenty four. Uh you know, I didn't say we necessarily crowned him, but we were in a position where we thought Dubuque might be back and might be rolling, and then all of a sudden uh, Warburg comes along, shuts him down a little bit, and uh, Dubuque, uh, as I don't know when the last time was they've beaten Warburg. They have not beaten Warburg during, uh, during any of Dubuque's uh, successful years in the last decade or so, and uh, Warburg made that stand up again on Saturday with a 22-15 win. Yeah, sometimes in a you know conference, you just have that team that for whatever reason uh, they they own you and and you know can't make a, a whole lot of sense of it. Um, and, and you know for for Dubuque, yeah, as as far as they've come, um, you know Warburg is is that team for them. Uh, you throw that together, uh, that twenty two fifteen game together with uh, Simpsons win in overtime um, over Co. You know a team that was two weeks ago. A lot of people thought that was the the best team in the conference. Now they've got two losses. Uh, Dubuque and Simpson are, are chasing Warburg at this point. Uh, let's see. In the uh, CCIW, obviously we talked about some stuff that happened at the top. At the bottom of the league, North Park won a second conference game. If you hearken back, yes, hearken, I use the word hearken. Go back to the uh, uh, Around the Nation podcast we did when uh, North Park uh, beat Carthage to snap its 13-season conference losing streak. We talked with some seriousness about uh, games that North Park could go and win the rest of the season, and here they did win a second conference game for the first time since 1993. Yeah, and, and my only comment there is that the the 83 to 86 Augustana alums must just have their their uh, hands buried in their faces because you know that you go from being the uh, best team in Division Three to being the team that loses to. To North Park, I know North Park is on the rise, and they got a pretty, uh, pretty nice trio of of Conways there that have uh, helped that that team uh, rise up a little bit. But uh, that's a, that's a big, you know, not sea change, but it's a big sort of uh, statement, I think, for uh, for North Park to be able to beat a team with the you know, Augustana hasn't been great for uh, for a number of years now, but that's a big deal for them. Out west, Redlands was down 17-7 going into the fourth quarter, but they came back to defeat Chapman and hand Chapman its first loss of the year. Yeah, and, and no, no disrespect to the Bulldogs' accomplishment, but that would have been a more uh, noteworthy thing to talk about uh, if Chapman had pulled the win off. Chapman is, is one of those programs that um, doesn't have the, 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 the name recognition, doesn't have the, the long history of football success, has only actually been a member uh, of the Skyac for a couple of years, and this would have been their their first chance to take over first place in the conference and uh, and and have a chance to win the conference, represent the conference in the playoffs. Instead, it's uh, it's Redlands who's out in front. Not that much of a surprise, um, but that, that certainly was a pretty uh, competitive game. 
Greenville won its 16th consecutive game. Uh, they won at Iowa Wesleyan. I think the the takeaway here, though, is the fact that uh, even though there's only two games left in the season uh, at 7-0, and this is not a, uh, a conference that's going to get wrapped up anytime before the final week of the season, which for them is week 10, two weeks from now, because uh, Greenville and St. Scholastica have yet to play each other, and they're both unbeaten in the UMAC. Yeah, Greenville at the top at 7-0, 8-0, Scholastica 7-0, uh, 7-1. They lost to Whitworth earlier in the season. I appreciate you uh, going ahead and, and handling the UMAC as you're the uh, resident UMAC expert. Yeah, uh, I do my best. Um, and then my final kind of lightning thought. So on Saturday, when I go to uh, when I go to Heidelberg to see the Heidelberg Mount Union game, do I expect to see John Bucigras there? Or is he just going to... You know, only mention the score on Sports Center if Heidelberg wins, or how do you think that plays out? Uh, I think it would be what you said. Uh, if Heidelberg wins, it'll get on Sports Center. If Heidelberg does not win, it's like it never happened. So we will see how uh, how that plays out. As uh, that's of course one of the big games coming up next week. We will run through the Week Nine schedule, but before we uh, get into that, we have to uh, first uh, score triple take, as it were, uh, run down the. Uh, the predictions that we made going into Saturday's games and see how they played out. Game of the week. And a reminder, this is uh, Ryan Tips, who's our senior editor, a longtime Around the Mid-Atlantic columnist. Uh, myself and Keith, we go through the uh, week and we try to predict upsets, which is always interesting. Uh, game of the week. Ryan took Wheaton and Illinois Wesleyan. I took Whitewater Oshkosh. And you took Pacific Lutheran Willamette. I, there was, those were not difficult picks, uh, just to figure out which one of us got which one. Yeah, I, mean, I think your, your game, Pat, was probably the one that ended up being most game of the week worthy. Not that um, you know Pacific Lutheran Willamette or uh, or IWU and uh, Wheaton were bad, but uh, your game was the was the Whitewater Oshkosh was the closest of the three, and was the gamey of the weekiest. But uh, it it was also <laughs> as, as you like as you like to point out. Um, uh, the, rank, the rankings held up. It was not only the best game, but it was the one matching the, the two highest teams in the poll. Uh, Whitewater was number seven, and Oshkosh was number nine coming in. Gamey of the weakiest. I think that's that really conveys the opposite uh, of what you really think it means. You're trying to say there. True, but once you get 45 or so minutes into the podcast, I feel like you, you can pretty much get away with anything because only people that are listening at this point are people who already really, really love D3 football and D3.com. Am I right? Uh, I think that's true. Uh, I hope that's true. Uh, tweet at us and let us know if you're not listening. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so uh, w- one made-up word is not going to ru- you're not going to knock off all <laughs> our fans. I hope anyway. <laughs> Surprisingly close. Uh, Ryan and I both ended up with Kings at Delaware Valley. Um, that was surprising in the way that it was close in the other direction, and then the Redlands Chapman game, which uh, was a twenty-one seventeen final. Yeah, it ended up being close, but. I- I'd like to take a. The only way I get a point is if we use the prices right rule here. Whereas uh, surprisingly close doesn't count if your close team actually wins. Right, uh, the closest without going over. You could have bid one dollar in that case. You could have taken. Right. Uh, you could have taken the the Linfield Lewis and Clark game and still won if we were playing by prices right rules. Right, and I'm sure. Although that was, there's no way that was surprisingly close. That was surprisingly ridiculous. <laughs> actually, no. Never mind. Um, most likely top 25 team to get upset. Uh, Ryan took Hobart. I thought that was interesting. I took nobody, which, um, you know, may seem like a cop out, but I really didn't think like they were 
top ten, uh, top twenty top five teams that were going to get upset. Uh, this is the first mention of St. John Fisher losing to Ithaca, uh, and then of course Keith did take St. John Fisher formally, which helps. Ooh, yeah, I get a point, and I, I give uh, Ryan credit for uh, for taking Hobart because I think Hobart and Wabash are the two teams you don't want to take here in in the top twenty five to get upset because they will hear about it and they will let you know. <laughs> if Ryan ever picks Wabash to get upset in that fashion. Yeah, they, they they may not issue him tickets for the Mona Bell game. That's right. Uh, they'll be on your radar. Oh, Ryan tries to make nice for DePauw. Um, I tell you what, DePauw is not on my radar. I have to go back and look and see what DePauw did on Saturday. Keith, help me out. Uh, man, it was Brian's radar. Like like you said, we, we nobody even knows what they did. I think I I do actually think they won. They um, did. They beat Allegheny twenty three seven. Yes, I did. I remember seeing that, but I did not. I confess I did not pay very close attention to the, the particulars of that one. It is three wins in a row for DePauw after an 0-4 start. Um, you know, Oberlin and Allegheny aren't necessarily uh, teams to write home about this year, but the, in between those, they won at Ohio Wesleyan. And Remember, Ohio Wesleyan was uh, on the verge of making the uh, um, bracketologists really freak out in Week 11 last year. Um, Merchant Marine on my radar, yep. I might be able to pull that one more time. Uh, Chicago playing at Pacific. Um, I read what you wrote about Chicago playing at Pacific, and I thought, oh, man, Keith missed out. I had a conversation with uh, uh, with Blake Tim, the Pacific SID, at the beginning of the week. He was telling me about the stuff that he was putting together because of the whole Amos Alonzo Stag connection in that game. The best part was I finished the, the triple take, tweeted it out, and the next, like, the next tweet or the tweet right before it was uh, was and I didn't read it till after I'd finished it, but I I read it. I said, "Oh man, you got to be kidding me!" Be, you know, because the the elder stag coached at the other Pacific uh, in, in Stockton, California, and uh, so I always just say, ah, "Well, there's no connection between Pacific and, and Chicago." And, and when I said that, when I wrote that, I meant there's nothing. They don't. They're not conference rivals, and it's weird for at this point in the season for a team from the West Coast Northwest Conference we play the UAA team in the Midwest. You know, that's that's kind of a matchup. You if you have to see it, you see it early in the season. That's mostly what I meant, but uh but it couldn't have blown up in my face any worse. Well for Pacific, uh congratulations to the boxers. They clinched their first winning season since bringing football back and I think that means their first winning season since uh something like nineteen eighty seven as they uh, as they won on Saturday. And they have yet to face uh, Linfield and I uh, noted uh, I read on Twitter where the uh, halftime score, the seventy to nothing halftime score, was announced at the Pacific game and drew an audible groan from the crowd, uh, as you probably could picture. A pass-heavy pick. I don't know if we how we pick winners on this. Um, so Ryan took center, I took Worcester State, and you took Texas Lutheran. And did they all throw the ball on Saturday? Well, I'm certain that they all threw the ball uh, at least once. Uh, I think if you if your pass heavy pick wins, that's who that's right. You just you're picking the pass heavy team. Do they also have to happen to be pass heavy on that day? I don't know. Is that maybe this is a two point question then? Well, yeah, right. Yeah, you got to double credit. I think we just we we take a look at uh, who won out of the group. I know I know my pick won. Uh, mine did not, as uh, very famously gave up 455 yards rushing to one player. Uh, center lost to Rhodes, 35-14, and just Gosh, for kicks, center was 21-40 of 40 for 238 yards. Um, and, and I'm 
I, I can't uh, boast too much about uh, my pick, Texas Lutheran. As I wrote in that thing, uh, they did get a pretty good game from Mississippi College. They end up winning uh, 35-32 uh, in... Clinton, Mississippi. Jackson area. Yeah, I was like, the, ja- the city, the city, uh, Clinton. Right. <laughs> the Jackson, Mississippi, greater metropolitan area. <laughs> area. Yeah. I was going to try to get away with that. Uh, <laughs> thanks for not letting me. <laughs> well, we've flown into Jackson. How many gates are there? Uh, that, I remember one. Was there, no, I'm sure <laughs> there was at least one. one. But, uh, I think you know, I, I think it's smaller. Though, it, it it's uh, it's it's bigger than Abilene. Abilene's the smallest airport I've flown into in the pursuit of Division yeah, Three football, but not by yeah, much. That was that scared me to death, half to death. Not not that Abilene airport itself, but just flying in there on the, the tiny plane. And I, I, the guy put. I mean, you're flying. You know, Texas is just totally flat, and you fly in there straight, and the guy just put he put the thing like nose down. You know, for for five minutes, and then boom, they were on the ground. It wasn't like the long descent when you're on a jet where you start twenty minutes over. But uh, tangent, we may have got on there. Possibly, I had one more spoke for that tangent. It's uh, it's it's getting on the turboprop at DFW, and your cruising altitude for forty seven minutes is at seventeen thousand feet. That is the uh, that's the that's that's the Abilene trip for me. Um, also, the point at which I learned because I flew in and out of Abilene four times, maybe three times for sure, um, is learning that the first flight out in the morning is an actual jet, or at least it was a few uh, a few years ago. So it was uh, much it was it was worth it to me to get on that six ten a.m. flight because I would have been there. I had to be there an hour and a half earlier, but it was much more comfortable. Yeah, those those yeah. travel props are, uh, you know, the ones where they tell you you got to sit on this side to balance out the plane, that's a small flight. <laughs> Our run-heavy picks, Ryan took Salisbury. Uh, Salisbury uh, shut out Hartwick, and, and they did run in the course of doing so. Uh, I took Hobart over RPI, and Keith took Wartburg, and all three of those teams won. Woo. And our defense heavy pick, uh, Ryan took Mary Harden Baylor. Mary Harden Baylor, I know, won sixty three to seven. I took Wesley. Wesley, uh, they, I know they won, uh, and it was a little bit of a heartburn for a while, but they won twenty to thirteen. Um, I think I probably give myself a point there, right? Yeah. Keith took Hampton Sydney, and so that's that, our triple take recap. Yeah, that that was it was looking good. There was a tweet. I, I got two two tweet related stories for this last one. Uh, Hampton Sydney sends out a tweet, and they're uh, this must have been the ninth point of the game where it's nineteen zero. They're outgaining Shenandoah like two or one seventy seven or two nineteen or something to seventy seven yards. And I'm like, man, that pick is looking good. And then you know, of course, I picked the game up later in the fourth quarter. Shenandoah stormed back, and uh, that was not a defense heavy pick. Although that was sort of the gist of the of the pick itself was that. Hampton Sydney good at defense, ran. That's kind of random because they're uh, they're well known for their offense. And uh, you know the funny thing about the Mary Harden Baylor final score is that if you follow the Mary Harden Baylor diehard fans as as we do on Twitter, um, you know they're they're thinking at a level now that's that's not necessarily concerned with did you know of course they want to win this week, but they're already thinking okay, this good, how good is this team? in relation to how far can it go in the playoffs, is it better than last year's team, that type of thing. And uh, so they're, they're, they're nitpicking. And, you know, the, ah, we didn't throw the ball that well today. We're not, uh, this guy's not looking that good, that type of stuff. So you think, oh, man, they must not be playing all that well. And then you see the final score at 63-7. It, it's just that's how good 
Mary Harden Baylor is this season that they're, they're, there's only a few flaws to find, I guess. Coming up next week, we've mentioned a lot of these games already, but uh, we'll just run down them because it's a very impressive list. We got, uh, of course, the Mount Union at Heidelberg. We've got Willamette hosting Linfield. We've got Illinois Wesleyan playing host to North Central. We have Hobart going to Union. We have Platteville going to Whitewater. Oshkosh hosting Stevens Point. Uh, Ursinus going to Johns Hopkins. Uh, St. Thomas going to Augsburg. We have. Uh, Wittenberg, Ohio Wesleyan, which is a game that uh, should have been played last year but wasn't uh, because of the schedule. Gustavus Adolphus hosts St. John's. Alfred hosts Salisbury. And those are just the games involving teams in the top 25. It's going to be a pretty good week of uh, Division Three football next week. And they always get pretty good this far into the season. Very rare you, you get week nine where you don't have a bunch of games with uh, with conference uh, you know, title implications. Um, so I think pretty much from, from here on out, Pat, this was the first really great week, I thought, where we had a, a mix of monster games and also just you know monster performances uh, from Octavius McCoy on down the line. Um, you know, we didn't even mention Dominique Hayden from, from Thomas Moore, who had a huge day rushing uh, well over 300 yards, but because it was not 455, yeah. uh, you know, we, we don't mention it at all. An hour and 10 and minutes into the podcast, yes, Dominique Hayden. Good job, by the way, on yeah. Saturday. Yeah, I mean, it's just sometimes those are the breaks. You know, you put up huge numbers in a division with 244 teams. Some other guy might put up even huger numbers. That's another made-up word. I don't know. Huger. huger. I, I don't, it's not a real word, Pat. Come on. Okay, well, um, I haven't been on the copy desk for like five years now, so I was going to let you have that one. Um, uh, you know, Webster makes updates from, from time to time, but I don't think a huger has been added. I did get a, uh, I do have a subscription again to the AP style book though. I am, uh, I'm very excited, very excited about that. Uh, other games outside, uh, of the top 25, uh, LaGrange hosts Christopher Newport. We've got Dubuque going to Simpson, Guilford playing host to Hampton, Sydney, and the battle of the valleys in the Mac as Lebval goes to Delval and, uh, that and many, Many, many more games on Saturday next week. Uh, that's the Around the Nation podcast. I want to let you guys know, at some point between now and the next Around the Nation podcast, you might see a rather significant change in the way D3Football.com looks. I have been looking at it all weekend, and it's driving me crazy because the new site design from Presto Sports in my mind is fantastic and I am looking forward to you guys seeing it so that uh, so that we can all um, enjoy the the website the you can all enjoy the website the way that Keith and I have been enjoying it over the last couple of days because uh, we see it when we are logged in to edit the darn thing um, so uh, keep an eye out for that if you go to d3football.com and it looks surprisingly different um, you know, there's no need to adjust your monitor. That is what it will be looking like. And, of course, all the other things that go on during the course of uh, regular action this week. We have uh, Play of the Week nominations are due by 5 p.m. on Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Team of the Week nominations, that is our weekly honor roll, where we honor the top 25 players in Division Three, one at each position, including an entire offensive line. If you ever see an, uh, how many conferences recognize the top offensive line, uh, in the course of any given week. Uh, the, the number might be less than one. Um, so we have that. Uh, this presented by Scoutware. You usually see that on uh, Tuesday evenings, uh, with any luck. Uh, around the region columns, middle of the week next week, the first regional rankings from the NCAA should be out. They are scheduled to come out on Wednesday. 
I emphasize that they are scheduled to come out on Wednesday. Typically they do, however, the football rankings tend to come out on time, even the first week. Uh, Keith will be writing uh, around the nation. Uh, you've already seen a Snap Judgments on Sunday. Keith, now that we're recording this on Saturday, I've just put you on the hook for making sure you have a Snap Judgments for, Saturday, for Sunday. Um, and uh, everything else that goes on in Division Three football as we bring you up to Triple Take on Friday and Week 9 on Saturday. So for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman signing off for the Around the Nation podcast.